Brian Koberger slipped the police and, well, how do we know that? Well, apparently the gag order isn't really a gag order. Some contradicting cell phone data in the Alec Murdoch case, the Alec Baldwin affidavit for arrest, and the prosecutors don't want the Delphi murder suspects bond reduced. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment. Hit that bell for notifications. And remember, you can find us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. Now, before we get started, we need to support the people that support us. Please go to crimetalksearch.com. When you go there, you can sign up for a background subscription service one that you may cancel at any time. But while you have that background subscription service, you can do as many background searches on anyone here in the United States that you desire, anyone. And the report is literally generated while you wait. It's emailed to you and you're gonna have information regarding a background search that covers criminal history. Are they in public registries? Do they have debts that showing up as judgments, tax liens? All this information that you want to know about somebody. You know, are they married? Are they divorced? Are they in a bunch of debt? Things you want to know. Go to crimetalksearch.com. You'll be happy you did. All right, let's go ahead and open the record for February 1st, 2023. And let's talk about Brian Koberger. First on the docket, Brian Koberger disappeared and vanished for several hours while he was under surveillance by police investigators, according to a source. Now, surveillance teams had been tasked with keeping eyes on the 28-year-old criminology PhD student after he became a person of interest in the November 13 murders of Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Zaina Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin there in Moscow, Idaho. But in the early morning hours of 13 December, when he decided to set off on a cross-country trip with his father from his apartment there at the Washington State University in Pullman, ultimately heading to his family home in Pennsylvania, FBI agents lost uh, Mr. Koberger for several hours. Now, this information came to light in a podcast citing law enforcement sources who admitted that Mr. Koberger managed to slip the dragnet almost as soon as his white Hyundai Elantra pulled out of the parking lot from his graduate housing complex. Now, for the next several hours, the FBI and all were concerned that the man they believed to have brutally stabbed these four students was, well, gone. Investigators uh, frantically searched uh, license plate readers in nearby states to try and find any sign of Mr. Koberger and where his car might be. Ultimately, the car was finally pinged in Loma, Colorado, about 900 miles away from Pullman. So that's a pretty good chunk of time where he was not located. Now, it's unclear exactly how long Mr. Koberger's movements were unknown, but it's roughly a 15-hour drive from Pullman, Washington to Loman, Colorado. The route the father and son uh, took across the United States was not the most direct journey, but some people say that he did that uh, for legitimate reasons, perhaps weather-related issues. Uh, in fact, Mr. Koberger's father, Michael, uh, told a mechanic that he had uh, looked up the route to Pennsylvania and found the quickest route to be down the I-90 interstate. 
That journey would have taken about 36 hours. But instead, Koberger claimed that there would be uh, wintry conditions along the route and that uh, they should instead travel south towards Colorado, a route that added roughly six to seven hours to that trip. Now, once surveillance teams were back on Mr. Koberger's uh, tail in Colorado, law enforcement hit another potential issue when the suspect was pulled over by police twice uh, while driving through Indiana. Both stops took place just 15 minutes apart there in December, uh, one time by the county police and the other by the state police for driving too close to a vehicle in front of Koberger. Now, the body cam footage was previously released. We've shown that to you from both traffic stops showing a um, somewhat startled Mr. Koberger behind the wheel and his father in the passenger seat. The stops sparked concerns among the FBI surveillance teams who feared uh, what the possibilities could be. They thought it was maybe too dangerous as to what could play out with law enforcement across the country actively looking for this white Hyundai Elantra in connection to the Idaho murders. But in both cases, the father and son spoke cordially with the officers who then let them go with only a warning and appeared to make no connection to the wanted vehicle. Then for the next two weeks, Mr. Koberger was kept under surveillance while he stayed at his parents' home in Pennsylvania. Now, while he was there one night, he was uh, spotted dumping trash into a neighbor's bin and the trash was seized and DNA evidence found on it was used to tie him to a knife sheath left behind at the killings. And then ultimately on December 30th, Mr. Koberger was finally arrested in the early morning uh, raid on his home. He's obviously behind bars there in Moscow, Idaho, charged with quadruple murder and burglary. Uh, now, officials in uh, Moscow have not addressed this information that uh, came out regarding them basically losing Mr. Koberger for several hours, and they're not probably going to make any comment because there's a gag order that prevents law enforcement officials and the defense and the prosecution teams from speaking out, obviously, about this case. The gag order was issued as Mr. Koberger was being extradited from Pennsylvania to Moscow, Idaho, and um, it's a rather broad uh, gag order, and uh, lots of news organizations are trying to uh, say that it is too broad and uh, it is basically prior restraint. So hopefully the court will say, we can do this in the public because the public has a right to know. But we've talked about lots of cases in Idaho and the one down uh, just uh, south of uh, where this case is taking place. Uh, they don't do anything in public. So uh, I'm a little concerned. We'll have to wait and see. Next on the docket, is this a turning point in the Alec Murdoch homicide case? That's right the cell phone data information is coming into evidence. It took a while to lay the appropriate foundations, but the expert, Lieutenant Dove, has been laying it out and the defense scored a couple of points as well, but I'm not sure it's gonna be enough. So Alec Murdoch uh, got emotional as he was watching video played at his trial where three voices can be heard at the murder scene of his son and wife, Maggie. Now, prosecutors say the video was taken by Paul Murdoch at 8.44 p.m., and that is their evidence that proves that Mr. Murdoch was at the kennels just minutes before Paul and his wife were shot at 8.50 p.m. on June 7th, 2021. Now, the defense for Mr. Murdoch claims that the last time he saw Maggie and Paul alive was when they were having supper at the house on the estate there in South Carolina. He claims he only saw them at the kennels when he arrived home 
from visiting his mother to find them both deceased. The alleged killer called 911 at 10.07 p.m. The prosecution witnesses, this Lieutenant uh, Britt Dove, was unable to identify the voices but told jurors you can clearly hear three different voices because they are so different. Witnesses are expected to identify the voices later in the trial. Now, Paul was taking the video of a Labrador's tail at the kennels. He was looking after the animals for his friend, Rogan Gibson, whose conversation with Paul had been revealed in court. Now, earlier, Maggie Murdoch's iPhone record showed how her husband of 28 years made a series of calls and texts to his wife in the frantic minutes after her death. Now, Murdoch called Maggie three times between 9.04 p.m. and 9.06 p.m., and then twice more at 9.45 and 10.03 p.m. Prosecutors argue that the calls were an effort to manufacture an alibi. Now, for those who aren't familiar, Maggie and Paul were shot dead at the kennels of the family hunting estate on the night of June 7, 2021. Paul's phone locked at 8.49 p.m. and 35 seconds, and Maggie's locked at 8.49 and 31 seconds. Neither victim read another text message or the, picked up another call after that time. Alex Murdoch's phone data was put before jurors Wednesday, showing that the alleged killer's phone stopped recording steps for almost an hour between 8.09 and 9.02 p.m. Prior to this, Murdoch's phone recorded regular movement. Hmm. Prosecutors John Conrad paused testimony to note this hour-long break, and the state says that Murdoch killed his wife at 8.50 p.m. So the defense did a really good job uh, as it relates to putting Maggie's phone down the road and no movement, and Alex Murdoch's phone showing movement at the same time, which which mean he couldn't be in two places at once. However, I was a little surprised in cross-examination that the defense didn't do anything with the Snapchat video from Paul's phone. We'll see how that plays out if they have somebody that's gonna say, that is not Alex Murdoch. We know that they slowed down the previous recording to one third, so my guess is they're gonna try to get in some sort of expert to possibly say that's not Alec Murdoch's voice. Wait and see. All right, next on the docket, Alec has been officially charged. We can give you the quick summary, but we like to give you the actual court documents. It's much more accurate than what you're going to see in the press. So let's quickly go through it. I will try to do it quickly, but it is worth the read. So this is the affidavit for probable cause, basically affidavit for arrest for Alexander Ray Baldwin III. And it starts, Statement of Probable Cause. On October 21st, 2021, in the county of Santa Fe, state of New Mexico, a shooting involved a handgun revolver firearm occurred that resulted in the death of Helena Hutchins and the serious injury of Joel Souza. The shooting involves a 45 caliber revolver and occurred on the Western movie set located in rural Santa Fe County, referenced to and known as Bonanza Creek Ranch, 15 County Road 45, Santa Fe, New Mexico. On this date, being filmed and or rehearsed at this location was a film at the time named referred to as Rust. Through these statements, interviews, and evidence, it was determined that after lunch on October 21st, 2021, the crew, production staff, camera crew, and actors were preparing for a scene set in the church. This was not an established rehearsal, nor had filming commenced. At this point, Baldwin was seated in what 
is referenced to appears to be a church on the movie set. Baldwin was in possession of a 45 long Colt caliber revolver type firearm, one of a type and kind often used as or seen in a Western genre type movie and or the sets. The firearm is a single action revolver handgun, which requires the cocking of the exposed hammer, which then rotates the cylinder and the pressing of the trigger is required to fire the weapon. In front of Baldwin standing were victims Helena Hutchins and Joel Souza. Hutchins and Souza were viewing and moving a camera for a possible setup for a later scene to occur at a later undetermined date and or time. Through these same statements, interviews, and physical evidence, it was learned that Helena Hutchinson was the director of photography for the film and Joel Souza was the director writer for the film. Information and evidence obtained shows that Baldwin was seated in a pew facing the northerly direction towards the front of the church. In front of him was Helena Hutchinson's and Joel Souza and a camera operator along with other crew, i.e. sound, script, costume, etc. Baldwin was wearing a shoulder holster, which was securing holding the 45 long Colt caliber single action six shot revolver. Baldwin was practicing drawing and pointing the weapon for the scene with guidance and instruction from Helena Hutchins and Joel Souza. The setup was to be close up on Baldwin and the firearm as he drew the weapon and pointed it. Helena Hutchins and Joel Souza were viewing the practice scene on a monitor attached to the camera. Baldwin drew the revolver from the holster, pointed it at Helena Hutchinson, and fired the weapon. When reviewing the script and witness interviews for this particular scene and close-up shot, evidence indicates the scene shot did not require the weapon to be fired. It was also determined by consultation with expert armors that in a rehearsal, a plastic gun or replica gun would be used as no firing or blanks is required. However, Baldwin fired the single action 45 long Colt revolver resulting in the discharge of a projectile that struck and traveled through the right armpit of Helena Hutchins, exited her back from the Office of Medical uh, Examiner's official report, then struck Joel Souza in the right shoulder and lodged in his right back. At approximately 1.48 p.m., the shooting was reported to the Santa Fe County Regional Emergency Communications Center via 911. This resulted in the response of fire, emergency, medical, and Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office personnel. This further resulted in a case number CAD incident number being generated of 2021-007949. The Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office conducted an investigation into the shooting under this case number as a death investigation. Detective Alexandra Hancock was assigned as the primary investigator. The response of emergency personnel resulted in Joel Souza being transported by ambulance to the St. Vincent Regional Medical Center located at 455 St. Michael's Drive within the city limits of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Helena Hutchins was transported from the scene by air ambulance helicopter to a level one trauma center at the University of New Mexico Hospital located in Bernillo County, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Helena Hutchins was pronounced deceased at approximately 3.37 p.m. by attending medical personnel. Joel Souza was treated and released, but not before a projectile was removed from his back. The projectile appeared to be a lead projectile of the type and kind found in live ammunition. This item was secured and turned over to the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Department. As noted above and confirmed by the evidence and analysis, the recovered projectile first struck, then passed entirely through Helena Hutchins and then struck Joel Souza. There was no evidence that the bullet ricocheted, struck any object or person before striking Helena Hutchins. The projectile then penetrated through the front of Joel Souza's right shoulder and became lodged 
under the skin of his back. The officer of the medical examiner state of New Mexico listed Helena Hutchins' cause of death primarily as gunshot wound of the chest after conducting an autopsy on October 22nd, 2021. The following additional information and evidence is provided in further support of probable cause of the enumerated crimes having been committed by Baldwin. Firearms, ammunition, and Baldwin as actor and shooter. Statements and evidence show Baldwin was not present for required firearms training prior to the commencement of the filming. Statements, depositions from OSHA, and evidence show Baldwin was provided only minimal training on firearms, even after Reed requested more training for Baldwin. In the deposition taken from Reed, she stated Baldwin was very limited training on the cross draw that was required of the scene on the 21st and limited training in firearms on how to check his own firearm as to whether it was unloaded or loaded, in which Reed felt it was very important in his role at Rust. A training session for at least an hour and more in length was scheduled, but the actual training consisted of only approximately 30 minutes as according to Reed, Baldwin was distracted and talked on his cell phone to his family during the training. Baldwin approached responding deputies on the day of the shooting, wanting to talk to them because he was the one who, quote, fired, end quote, the gun. He was referred to and later identified by detectives. Baldwin later asserted that he never fired the resolver and that it had just gone off. Baldwin made this assertion public as well in multiple media interviews conducted after the shooting. Many media interviews and law enforcement interviews were conducted by Baldwin, and he displayed very inconsistent accounts of what happened during the incident when firing the gun that killed Hutchins. Photos and video evidence from inside the church on the day of the shooting show some of the rehearsal up to and including moments before the shooting. The photos and the video depict the above described actions Baldwin prior to the shooting, practicing drawing and pointing the weapon. The photos and videos clearly show Baldwin multiple times with his finger inside the trigger guard and on the trigger while manipulating the hammer and while drawing, pointing, and holstering the revolver. The revolver involved in the shooting was seized by detectives as evidence. It was later submitted to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Crime Lab for Examination Analysis. As part of their examination analysis, the FBI conducted the functioning malfunction check of the revolver. This involved trying to get the weapon to fire without the trigger being depressed, i.e. striking the hammer at various multiple angles against a solid object and striking the hammer of the revolver with an actual hammer mallet. The revolver did not malfunction, i.e. fire when it should not accidentally. This analysis clearly showed that the weapon could not accidentally fire for the weapon to fire. The trigger had to have been pressed. The analysis additionally included testing and or the documentation of the sear engagement points of the hammer as it moves from the position of at rest all the way down against the frame in its lower position through each engagement of the single action hammer mechanism. The firearm possessed one quarter and one half cock position safeties and were found to function as designed, i.e. keeping the hammer from striking the cartridge primer without pulling the trigger. The cylinder is was partially rotated, making it possible. Additionally, at one half cock, the cylinder is was partially rotated, making it impossible for the hammer and attach firing pin to strike the primer. The FBI additionally analyzed various types and kinds of ammunition seized from the scene, including the prop truck. This included dummy rounds, blank rounds, 
and suspected live ammunition. A total of five suspected live rounds, one spent casing of a live round that was discharged, causing the shooting was seized by investigators. Evidence and statements indicate that aside from what Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the armorer, Rust production may have brought to the set with her all weapons and ammunition, blank and dummy, for the production were obtained from a supply company in Albuquerque, PDQ Arms and Prop LLC. Detectives investigated these facts, including the service of a search warrant at the place of the business of PDQ Arms and Prop in Albuquerque, who was the supplier of the dummy and blanks to Rust. Several suspected live rounds of 45 long Colt caliber cartridges were seized as a result, some supplied by the company owner to investigators and some found at the place of business. These rounds were submitted to the FBI for comparison and the suspected live rounds found at the shooting scene. The explosive chemistry examination of the rounds showed that the smokeless powder in the live rounds found at the scene did not match the live rounds seized from the props arms supplier in question. This means the live rounds on rust did not match the rounds explosive chemistry taken from PDQ arms and prop. The FBI lab determined that the five suspected live rounds recovered at the scene of the shooting were indeed live rounds, each possessing an unfired primer, powder, and bullet as part of the cartridge. These five rounds were found by detectives and crime scene technicians while processing the scene. The five unfired rounds were found in the following locations, one from the SFSO, Lieutenant Benavides patrol vehicle, that was seized from Reed upon his arrival, two from the top of the armorer cart, including the one spent live round casing, and one from the bandolier on the cart, one from the Baldwin's holster located inside the church, one from an ammunition box located on the survivors and one from an ammunition box located on the armorer's cart. Along with the casing and fired projectile, there were a total of six 45 live rounds that were discovered in various locations on the Rust set. Evidence further shows that Baldwin, as an actor who has an extensive experience in the film industry involving firearms, failed to demand at least two safety checks between the armorer and himself and witnessing the handling of firearms by a first assistant director. Standard protocol is the armor is to show the actor the firearm, pull the bullets out in front of the actor, and demonstrate there are no live rounds but dummies in the firearm. Baldwin knows this standard safety protocol, as he mentioned in the media interview with law enforcement interviews. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, hereafter Reed, did not do this protocol in front of Baldwin, Baldwin did not object to this action. Reed discusses in her interviews with OSHA and law enforcement this should have occurred. Reed also acknowledges in her interviews she should have been in the church with the firearms at all times. Instead, she left the church while Baldwin was in possession of the firearm in close proximity to the cast and crew. Baldwin further acknowledged that this is standard protocol for armors to stay with the firearms at all times in the media interviews. Finally, Baldwin directly pointed a firearm at Hutchinson and Souza. Whether guided by her direction or not, Baldwin knew the first rule of gun safety is never point a gun at someone you don't intend to shoot. In addition, always assume a gun is loaded. Had Baldwin performed the required safety checks with 
the armor, Reed, this tragedy would not have occurred. In addition, if Baldwin had not pointed the gun at Hutchins and Souza, this tragedy would not have occurred. This reckless deviation from known standards and practice and protocols directly caused the fatal shooting by not receiving the required training on firearms, deviating from the required duties of checking the firearm with the armor, letting the armor leave the church against protocol, deviating from the practice of only accepting the firearm from the armor, not dealing with safety complaints on the set, not making sure the protocols of safety meetings was occurring, putting his finger on the trigger of a real gun, not using a replica firearm from the unscheduled rehearsal, pointing the gun at Hutchinson and Souza, and the overall handling of the firearm in a negligent manner. Baldwin acted with willful disregard of the safety of others and in the manner which endangered other people, specifically Hutchins and Souza. Baldwin clearly should have known of the danger of his actions, which led to the death of Hutchins. We're going to stop there. Tomorrow, we'll bring you the portion regarding Baldwin as the producer. On with the show. Guess what? The Delphi prosecutors want Richard Allen to remain in custody. That's right. The Carroll County prosecutors there in Indiana are arguing against bail for Richard Allen, the suspect in the Delphi killings. Now, the court documents uh, filed by the prosecutor's office uh, basically say in their argument that uh, they have provided enough evidence against Mr. Allen to substantiate the murder charge. And the prosecutors also believe that the evidence against the accused adds up to strong and evident proof of guilt, which means he's not even entitled to bond. So the prosecutors point out that under the state and local law, that bail can be denied for a person charged with murder. Now, bail hearing is scheduled for February 17th. Trial dates should also be discussed on that date as well. And earlier in January, a judge ruled uh, that the Delphi murders case will come from Allen County. That's in the northern part of the state. Now, according to the uh, documents, uh, Judge Francis Gall determined the jury will be drawn from the northeastern Indiana County whose county seat is Fort Wayne, with the trial taking place in Carroll County. The gag order issued in the case continues in its current form, and the judge said that the initial lawyers, police, and family members can't talk about the case publicly, and legal teams are only allowed to speak with the media about procedural items. Now, the attorneys for Mr. Allen uh, said that they argued for the court documents in this case to be unsealed. Now, with the documents being unsealed, they would hope to receive tips that would assist in proving up their client's innocence. The bail hearing is scheduled for February 17th, and um, hopefully we'll have some more information. And then finally today, our dumb criminal of the day. A Florida high school principal, ah yes, the people teaching the young minds full of mush out there how to be good citizens, well, he was arrested after he was caught on camera keying a person's car in a supermarket parking lot. Now, Nathaniel Fancher is the principal of the St. Cloud High School and faces criminal mischief charges, and he's now been placed on administrative leave. The arresting affidavit says that police were called to the Publix in St. Cloud on January 26 by a victim who reported their car was keyed while they were inside the store. The store manager did what any store manager would do, provided surveillance footage that showed the suspect doing the alleged deed. After identifying uh, Fancer as the suspect, police got him on the phone. He responded without prompting, is this about the car, he asked, and then was asked if he was under arrest. Well, Fancer said that he was in New York 
and would be back on January 31st. On that date, he called police and asked to contact the victim and pay for the damage in order to avoid the whole being arrested and mugshot thing if we just take care of this. Well, there's roughly $3,700 in damage. Needless to say, uh, afterwards, uh, the uh, principal contacted the school resource officer at his school and admitted Keen to the car. How much trouble am I gonna be in? Well, the police responded, interviewed him, and then arrested him on criminal mischief charges. That's how much trouble you're in. The school district uh, sent a note to the parents, letting them know that their uh, person responsible for uh, making their young uh, minds full of mush, uh, young responsible adults, has been um, put on administrative leave. He bonded out of jail. A couple of lessons there. Uh, first, what idiot doesn't know everything is recorded, particularly at um, grocery store parking lots? Absolutely. Next, when you police call you, you should probably act a little surprised. I have no idea what this is about. Instead of asking, is this about the car? And then don't go to the police again saying, I did it only to get arrested. I guess that's the uh, ask too many questions, find out kind of analysis there. Anyway, Mr. Fancher, you are our dumb criminal of the day. Congratulations. You made it. You can put that on your resume when you're looking for a new job. All right. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.